Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. Father, we thank you that we could gather in this room, God, in this place to be formed by you, not to be formed by my opinions or Uh, my disposition, but rather, God, would we learn from your word and be changed into your image. God, that we named this church Fixate because that is what it's about, to gaze at with unwavering attention and focus and in that place that the creator would create in us. God, I pray that nobody comes into this place and doesn't realize that the creator's intended purpose was to create in them And ultimately, when our eyes are on him, our hearts are in him, and our habits are around him, he creates anew in us. God, may we be fixated today, for we are your children. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. We've been in a series of just passion preachings to start off this month of January And what I mean by that is a lot of us, when the new year turns, we assess what happened last year, what we wish we could change, what we wish we would have done different, and ultimately, what do we do? We typically start New Year's resolutions or think about our goals or ambitions for this next year. So what we've been doing is kind of, uh, I guess, throwing darts at a board of just a bunch of different passion kind of uh, moments and stories in scripture to kind of help fuel this desire to root ourselves in Jesus. And so today we're going to go in a a little bit different direction, and uh, it's not a very long story, but I do think it's a very important one in Mark. But before we get there, the title of today, Changes That Change. I think I just got that wrong. It's change that changes, but that's what happens when you preach two before this. So brain's a little uh, little sloshy. Uh, change that changes. Yes, actually changes. Amanda pointed it out. <laughs> what am I getting at here? You know, a lot of us, if we were really, if I were to ask you, do you want to change something about your life? Most of us in this room, and by most, all of us would say, yes, there's something we would change. Why? Because if you're a finished creation, you're a perfect creation, and none of us are that, nor will ever be that, and that is the frustrating thing about being human, is though we want to be something other than what we are, it becomes this endless cycle of wanting to be more than we are, searching for more than we are, reaching for the things that we think will add the feeling of us becoming more than we are, but in the process... We always feel like we're a work under construction. So what does it mean to live a lifestyle in which we pursue change, but the change that actually sticks and changes us? Why? Because if we're honest, we've all had feelings. Man, I want to change things in my life. But then the change doesn't stick. As sad as it is, as a a pastor and as uh, the pastor of this church, it's easy to view Jesus as a fad feeling or a comfort-driven season of which, you know, it's hopefully he'll change my life. Or I say it like this, for some of us, we have felt the burden to change and we've, we've been through the services and the worship songs and the, and the Christian and church upbringing and it's like, all right, God, you said you did it, so do it. God, you said you were the one, so be the one. God, I give it to you. It's there. 
But then ultimately what we fail to realize is this, is it's not just, a God, it's not just us giving up to God, is there's an issue of willpower. And a lot of us, as sad as it is, what we do is we give to God and then in that process of giving to God, we just exert as much willpower we can to change as much as we can in hopes that we'll change what we need. But ultimately, what's sad is, if we haven't learned it, I think all of us have, our willpower is not enough to change. See, our willpower of just grit your teeth, bear it, and get to the other side, that's not enough. Why, why am I going at it from this angle? Is because change to me is this idea that God can change you, but it comes down to your habits, behaviors, lifestyle. It comes down to your choices and your rootedness in Him that determines the level and depth of what that change does and what that change produces. You know, it's sad today that a lot of us, we sit in this room, and I want to kind of open up this debate topic here. We sit in a room like this, and immediately some of us maybe have a frustration of, man, I've tried to change, and I'm not going to lie, I've never changed, I've been terrible at change, I can't get over this, I've lost this battle 52,477.6 times. Like, I am, I cannot change this. And there's this condemnation that creeps in, the condemnation of you're not good enough to beat it. You're never going to see the other side. You're never going to get victory. You're never going to get what you want. You never again. And it just over and over this incessant kind of weight that just sits on our chest that tells us we're not enough. We'll never be enough. We'll never get to the other side. But what I want to challenge you today is this. That's actually a good thing. Why? Because for many of us, what we've gotten confused is condemnation and biblical conviction. Biblical conviction is this idea that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. In, in, the, in Hebrews, it actually talks about how God has written His words on our hearts. And this Holy Spirit is designed to lead, guide, and direct us. And so ultimately, this, this morality that is inside is the very thing that directs us. Now, what happens when you, don't, when you don't kind of obey or you don't listen to what's going on is that voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. But the more you listen to it and are yearning for more of God, that voice is present. So what am I saying? I'm saying that some of us, we feel condemnation, but maybe we're even getting it confused where it's a conviction of God's wanting to see us change, but the change being change found in Him. And here's what you have to understand about change. Godly change is change that brings us closer to Him. Not that adds more zeros to the bank account. Not whatever fill-in-the-blank happiness we think it is. But change to God is proximity to Him. And that's what we're going to talk about in this story. But I challenge you today. See, some of us... We feel the condemnation of being somebody who feels like we're stuck in our ways. But I would say this, awareness is a good thing to have, even if you feel like it's negative, because it's an invitation to deeper dependency, obedience, and paying the cost to see a life changed. See, the reason I tell you this is because as we get into this story today, We as people have to assimilate, okay, condemnation is what the enemy wants you to believe, that you'll never be able to do it. You'll never get to the other side. You'll never see another day. You'll never be able to overcome that weakness or that struggle. Conviction is God saying, no, you can, but you have to do it through me. 
Conviction is, okay, you're aware of the things that have to happen. You're aware that you're a little bit maybe guilty or feeling a sense of shame. But here's the deal. In me, we can change that. In me, we can do something more with that. In me, I can create in you a new creation. And we can take care of those feelings. You know, uh, I cut my teeth with discipleship in community houses. And uh, me and my dad, uh, we flipped houses um, up in the Midwest. And so I flipped out while I was working full-time ministry, I were, I flipped a few houses and it was fun, but also P- I still have PTSD. Uh, anybody who's a house flipper in here, I feel like, you know, you're just like, Oh, I can do this. And then you get like halfway done and you're like, why did I ever try to do this? Or you're like in a four inch crawl space and you're six inches of width. And you're just like trying to run wiring. Also wondering like, am I going to die right now? Maybe, I don't know. But, uh, but I remember I would flip houses and, what, and over time what we did is we flipped houses and created space for community. And what that meant is we had a guy's house and a girl's house. And really our goal here it actually as a church is to one day have kind of community houses of development and discipleship for people interested in uh, what it means to kind of co-labor in the, the ministry of building this church. But back then we had a community house and this community house I led the guy's house. And it's actually funny, over the years, I think I've lived with over 60 guys, uh, which is not a good thing, if you're wondering. It's not. Um, but, uh, but over the years, I remember uh, I lived with, uh, like I said, over 60 guys. But I'll never forget this. I was, uh, there was one person that moved in that, man, they wanted to change, and they were hungry to grow, and they were hungry to be used, and hungry to know God, and hungry for all the stuff, right? All the spiritual language that we use. But man, every week it just felt like, you know, when you have seven or eight guys that are all living with similar goals and aspirations and uh, agendas and, you know, we function, reading the Bible together, blah, blah, you kind of stick out if you don't do that. And so this person, man, they wanted it, they wanted it, but they would never do it. Not only would they not do it, but most of the time they, they would do the exact opposite. And it was becoming frustrating leading a community house in which somebody wanted to change but would never actually exhibit the behavior to change. And so ultimately over time, I remember going to my dad and meeting with him, who was the pastor at the time, and I said, hey, I'm really struggling with this person. Like, you know, I don't feel like I want to kick them out of the house because they have a good heart. They want to change. But look, this pattern of behavior, they just, are, are they ever going to change? And I'll never forget this because it was kind of the first time, like, my dad had said something that I was like, what are you talking about? He looked at me and he goes, oh, that person's probably going to be in jail in the next three months. And I remember looking at him like, okay, like, I know you're a pastor and all, but like to be like, yeah, they sinned a few times going to prison. (laughs) Like that's not, that's not like a leap that I would normally make. And I remember sitting there and a little bit like standoffishly being like, yeah, right. This guy's just has like some sin stuff, blah, blah, blah. Like he's going to be fine. Well, lo and behold, three months later, I'll never forget it. I got a call from the courthouse. You have a collect call from Berrien County Courthouse for, and the guy's name and he had ended up uh, in jail. And I've processed that a lot this week because I think there's elements of that story that for a lot of us, uh, for a lot of us, we, we fail to understand how you could just end up in such a negative outcome. And I think a lot of it really boils down to, I think inherently we all want to change, but as we dole the desire to change, 
and we put off the voice that's trying to tell us to change, and as we stuff down the behaviors that we know we should be doing to change, and as we kind of alienate ourselves from the things that will cause us to lean into change more, what we don't realize is we get further and further and further from where we want to go and who we want to be. Because change, really, for a lot of us, is inevitable. But I would also say the ones who steward it wisely and proactively are typically the ones who have the fulfillment and contentment of walking with God through everything. See, this is what you have to understand about change. I think for my journey in faith, what brings me the most fulfillment is not standing on this stage. But it's looking back at a life in which God challenged me to change. God challenged me to grow. God challenged me to climb a mountain that nobody else would be willing to climb in my life. God challenged me to do things that seemed so outside of my comfort zone. All of them related to change, and I've done them. And because of it, I felt the proximity of God and the fulfillment of God. And I want to say this to you, for a lot of us, what we don't realize is when we create distance with God, what we're really doing is we're not, we're not inherently, and I said this in the last service, when we sin, I do not believe, I'm sorry, I don't believe in a God who's angry and wrathful up in heaven when we sin. I believe in a God who, when we sin, is grieved, deeply grieved, because he looks at us and says, man, they're okay with distance, and they were never created for it. Because when we choose to sin, what we choose to do is create distance because we know biblically light and darkness, they have no community. So what I'm trying to say is this, is when we choose the darkness over the light, we create distance from the light. And from the light, as we push farther and farther away, what we tend to find out is that life in and of itself becomes dark. And so I challenge you today. I pray that as we talk about Mark 1 here in the next few moments, that we're not a people who just look at light and darkness and wonder how they exist or why they're there in some areas versus others. But rather, we would be a people today who would feel challenged to pursue the changes necessary to sense the fulfillment and contentment that comes from proximity and people who are willing to sacrifice anything In order to get close. Let's read Mark chapter 1. 40 through verse 45. We're jumping into the Bible. Let's do it. Mark 1, 40 through verse 45. It says this. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. I did quite a bit of research on that exact wording. Why? Because whenever you see somebody actually going towards Jesus, what they typically are asking for, will you heal me? Why is this person asking, will you clean me? You know, this, this, we're going to get into it here in a second, but this story is extremely deep, but also very important to understanding how we can walk out in change. Verse 41, it says this, Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Verse 43, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. 
And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to a priest and offer for cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to him, to them. Verse 45, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas that were come and people were coming to him from everywhere. Now, this story, what do we have? We've got a leper. And if you know anything about leprosy, fun fact, you guys ready for this wild twist and turn here? I actually, uh, in 2012, I was on a missions trip to India. I came back to the country and had uh, infectious sores all over my body and had to get tested for leprosy, right? So I carried my cross. <laughs> Literally, before quarantine was cool, I kid you not, I get back into the country and I flew into, uh, I flew into Florida. I get back in the country and they're like, they're like looking at my sores. Put me in quarantine where people came in with full hazmat suits because I'd been working in a leprosy colony and like had to fly in specialists. I was like, this is... As you can see, I turned out okay. I don't have leprosy. <laughs> if I do, you're in trouble. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, back then, leprosy was a death sentence. It was a death sentence on your social standing. It was a death sentence on the, the overall health and expectancy of your life. It was a death sentence on who you were viewed as as a person. I mean, you were subhuman to be a leper. How do we know this? Great question. Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Guess how this guy had to function? Let's read it. It says this. As for the person who has the leprous infection, his clothing shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall cover his mustache and call out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall live outside the camp. How many of you guys know? Sounds like an incredible existence. Sign me up for this. Like, shave my head, cover my mustache, shred my clothes, and every time you try to talk to me, I have to tell you unclean twice before we can talk. This is, this is pretty, like, a little extreme for somebody who has a skin disease and skin infection. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Where does the story start? Where does the story start in Mark? And a leper came to Jesus beseeching him. That's where it starts. But how can a leper go to somebody if they're not allowed inside the city? How can a leper go talk to a person if the only way they're supposed to talk to a person is by starting with unclean? What am I trying to say? This man has broken every social rule of the Old Testament that he can to get to Jesus. He's done the exact opposite of what he's supposed to do to get to Jesus. Not only that, taking it a step further, what we see about this miracle, and you actually can find it in another passage in Leviticus, it says Jesus has compassion and touches him. Another rule instantaneously broken. Why? Because for Jesus to touch a leper, in reference to Leviticus once again, he would have been condemned to spend seven days in isolation, and when he came back, have to give a sacrifice of purification to resolve and to uh, re-implement the fact that he was a clean person. So what's going on here? First off, a ton of laws are being broken, okay? But second off, there's a man who's a leper getting as close to Jesus as he can, as he can throwing himself at his feet and not asking to be healed. He's asking to be cleansed. What is cleansing? See, cleansing, if you know anything about the story, if you were unclean, you were never allowed in the temple 
You weren't allowed in the cities. You weren't allowed around people. See, he didn't just want healing. He wanted his entire personhood restored. Like I said, this is a wording that you don't see anywhere else in Scripture other than this story. And this story is referenced three times in three out of the four Gospels. A man who isn't going to Jesus saying, heal me. He's going to Jesus saying, cleanse me in such a way that every part of who I am is restored to who you've created me to be. What am I trying to get at right now? Change for a lot of us is, God, will you heal this one area? Where change biblically for God is will you cleanse every part of my humanity to make me a new creation? This is a big step. Notice also that Jesus says, sternly told the man, go to the temple and present yourself to a priest. Why is this important? In my opinion, this is the most overlooked aspect of the entire story. Leviticus 14 breaks down what you would have to do in order to be declared clean after you were unclean. It says that um, he was required to spend seven days in isolation as well as present an offering of sacrifices that entailed two live birds, cedar wood, scarlet string, a hyssop, and an earthen vessel that would be used in a ceremony of a sacrifice burned up that would say in this ritual, okay, professing over him he is now clean. Once again, One of the most overlooked parts of this story, in my opinion, is this. Jesus says, go to a priest so he can pronounce you clean. But he goes to a crowd to point to who the true priest was. Or should I say it like this? Go to a human priest and let him restore you. And this guy was like, I don't need to go to a human priest. I've already been restored by the heavenly priest. I'm going straight to the crowds. See, here's the thing about cleansing, is that this man was cleansed in such a way that he didn't need the ritual of what man said he needed to show that he was cleansed. He had been cleansed in such a way that his life then became about pointing others to the one who could cleanse them. See, and this is what we're missing a lot of the times. See, a lot of us, we're so focused on the change for ourselves that we're forgetting that God wants to cleanse you So you will help cleanse others. See, when we talk about change, and when we talk about making changes, a lot of the pressure I feel like on us is is how can I control these outcomes? How can I get what I want? How can I do the right activities and things? And not necessarily God, how can I pursue you in such a way that everything about me is cleansed into your likeness and your image? So that I can in turn cleanse others as well and point them to the heavenly priest. You know, before we get into kind of these few points, I take the pressure off of myself every Sunday. Every day, really. Because I can never cleanse you. I can't change you. And I would even say this, you can't cleanse or clean yourself. What you can do is you can go to the one who can who wants to get you so close that he can reach out and touch you. And when he touches you, you start to sense that, oh, there is a restorative element to this proximity. And you know what that restorative element is? It's not necessarily an exterior display of what you wanted. It's an interior posture of peace, contentment, fulfillment, and hope. 
See, I think for a lot of us, what a lot of people would trade everything from the exterior success-wise is for peace, contentment, fulfillment, and hope. What does God give to us? What does the Prince of Peace give to us? A peace that surpasses all understanding. What does God give to us? The ability to be a tree firmly planted by streams of living water that yields fruit in all seasons. What does God give to us? A yoke that is easy. A burden that is light. So today I want to give us, briefly, three quick things. And specifically, how do we make changes that change? How do you make changes today that will change your life? The first thing I want to give you is this. There are four steps to change. First, we must want to change. Second, we must develop goals and intentional framework to change. Third, we consciously and constantly regulate ourselves to maintain change. Four, we practice this cycle over an extended period of time. So much so that the change is done so many times consciously, it becomes an activity we do unconsciously. What am I saying to you? Many of us, we don't even realize this, okay? We have unconscious behaviors that are dictated by the environments we're in. Case in point, when I go home and I sit on my couch, my phone just hits my hand and the TV changer. Why? Because that's just what I do when I sit in front of my TV on my couch. I don't naturally go, oh, I'm going to grab a book and sit here and read. Why? Because that's not my reading spot. That's where I'm watching the games, right? It's where I'm watching the Packers lose. <laughs> it's where I'm watching Golden State lost the Lakers last night. That was fun. That's where I'm watching the Suns win, right? What am I saying? There is consciously, when I sit at my dining room table, I automatically just get a little hungrier. I sat at hungry like that on purpose. Because when I sit down, I'm hungry. Why? Because every time I sit at this table, I sit expectant of what I'm eating. I've done it hundreds of times. When I sit in my office chair, when I sit down, I have a rhythm and routine. I've been there hundreds of times. My mind slips into this this neuron pattern of just, okay, this is what you do when you're here. What am I saying to you? See, a lot of us, we don't even realize that you can make changes and implement them, regulate them, maintain them so much that they literally become a part of your unconsciousness. That you just do them now. It's just who you are. Me and my wife, we pray and fast every single week, 24 hours, every single week. Why? It's just who we are now. Doesn't, it, it's not painful. It's not hard. It's, this is, we pray and fast. We Sabbath every single week. It's just who we are. We recharge. We refuel. We rest. When I read scripture, it's what I do. I don't skip it. Why? Because if it's absent, I can feel that it's not there. What am I trying to get at to you? I think a lot of us, we have been so focused on the change and how hard it would be, and not necessarily that if we actually do the work of walking out change in our life and being cleansed, there's an unconscious blessing and functionality within it. And I say this to you today because I think for a lot of us, we overcomplicate what we need to do. First thing, what do you want to change? Write it down. Second thing, how do I change it? If you don't know, find somebody who you think might be able to help you. Three or four things, how do you change it? Third thing, how do you regulate it? 
Do you regulate your behaviors around that change? How do you, are you inviting people in to keep you accountable to that change? Those three things are the pain point. But then you find out over time that consciously as you make that choice, unconsciously the weight starts to lift. Consciously as you make this choice, all of a sudden it's not a burden anymore. There's not a cost anymore. There's a life. There's a vitality. I challenge us today as we're talking about this, that for some of us in this room, we don't realize that the cost of change is high, yes, but the cost of not changing is way higher. It is way higher for your life, for your spouse's life, for your family's life, for the eulogy that you want said over your life. The cost is high if you're not willing to change. I'm not going to be remembered as somebody who would not be willing to change, who would not be willing to be open-minded, to be able to learn new things, lean in deeper to the Spirit, and trust that as God was forming me, He truly was forming me in His image and not the man-made creation I want for myself. The second thing I have for you is this. There's a death-to-self part of change, a carry-the-cross part of change. Uh, I'm not looking for a little self-help part of change. A Jesus isn't just comfortable, self-care type of change. This is a revelation that it is not change you seek. It is to be cleansed. You know, the leper's revelation was, you can make me clean, I cannot make myself clean. Or should I say this, you can change me, I have discovered I cannot change myself on my own. The leper's revelation, you can change me. You can cleanse me. I cannot cleanse myself. I think this is a doctrine that a lot of us, if we were to really explore our theology today, we might come to realize that Sometimes we just come to Christ and what we're looking for is a little self-help. God, will you clean and heal this one area? You know, when I take a shower, I don't just go in and, man, I'm going to clean these three fingers right here. And I'm just going to, maybe four if I really feel like I want to get after it. When I, get in, when I get in to clean myself, I clean the entirety of my being. See, a lot of us, we want God to heal one part and not clean the whole part. See, and what we don't realize is in God's cleansing, there is healing to every part of who we are. But how are we cleansed by him? Pursue him. Proximate to him. At his feet. And wait for him to touch you. Wait for him to touch your life, touch your heart, touch your mind, touch your spirit. See, a lot of us were aware of the need and the fact that if we get close, he might need it. But what if you went towards him, not even hoping that he would meet a need, but rather that he would just restore your personhood? And what you'd find is is him meeting your need is just a byproduct of that heart. I say this because for a lot of us, I want to say that, you know, self-help and um, self-care is not inherently wrong. What it is wrong is when it dribbles into our spirituality in which, for me, therapy doesn't replace my Bible time. Golf doesn't replace loving my neighbor, even though I wish it did. (laughs) Right? 
What am I saying is, yes, I believe in, in these things, but at the same time, my underpinning is my life with the Creator because I know that if my life is in the Creator, He handles the creation of everything in my life. If my life is Jesus, He is the one who handles the creation of everything outside of life that I'm worried about. And so I challenge you today, as we are doing, as we're talking about this, what does it mean for us to truly be somebody who doesn't just want to be changed, but wants to be cleansed? My final thought for you today, I promise I'm wrapping up, is this. Your creator cannot change and cleanse you until you know fully who your creator is, who Jesus is. He is benevolent. Now, for a lot of us, you're like, why did you choose the word benevolent? Don't worry, I have somewhere I'm going here. You probably are picking up on that. But benevolent, the word, means to be marked by or disposed to doing good. Organized around doing good. Okay, so what is it? Okay, it's to be marked by or disposed, organized completely around doing good. That is benevolent. The reason I bring this up, there's a book I'm reading right now, which if you like a little bit more dense and heady books, it's a great one, How God Changes the Brain. It's a fantastic book. But in it, it talks about a study that Baylor University did um, by the polling group Gallup. Now, in this study, what happened is they wanted to ask, how do Americans see God? How do people in America see God? So what they did is they broke everything down into a category, how they see God. And then from there, they broke down the definition of what that category was. So there was multiple categories. And what they found was there were four top categories of how Americans saw God. The first one, authoritarian. The second, critical. The third, distant. The fourth, benevolent. Now, their definitions were interesting. The number one way Americans see God, authoritarian. 32% of people they found viewed God as an authoritarian God, one in three. What does that mean? Their definition, very angry, willing to punish anyone who is unfaithful or acts in an ungodly way. That is the view they have of God. That he is angry, he's wrathful, and he just wants to punish me. That's one third. The second, distant. Distant was defined as uninvolved, does not hold opinions of people or their behavior. This God feels less a person and more a force that drives the laws of nature and can be experienced in a myriad of different ways. This God is, well, I feel him sometimes in the forest and when I look out the window and see a sunset. and You know, it's kind of like this. He's distant, but at the same time, there's something out there, but who knows? Distant. The third one. Critical, 16%. Critical is those who believe he is critical of how they live. The difference between authoritative, though, is there is a belief within this critical element that he will not punish nor comfort his people, that he does not intervene in this world. He waits until all of us die, and we are confronted with if we're going to heaven or we're going to hell. See, this is... One of the elements as well. The last one, 23% of people believed he was benevolent. This definition, 
Less than one in four view God as gentle, forgiving, wanting to talk and be with us, not in a punishment, judgment, wrath type of way. These people believe he listens and responds to prayer, cares deeply about their lives, and feels the pain of suffering and pain of the people that serve him. And sometimes the cause of that suffering and pain is actually a means to draw closer and to have deeper awareness of him. See, that's the part of benevolent that's the most hard, in my opinion. To, to believe God's goodness when the world just feels not good. Circumstances, not good. Relationships, not good. Where I thought I would be, not good. Where I wished I would be. What I thought I would be making. See, a lot of the times what we, what we conflate and how we start to see God is based off of what our surroundings dictate we should see God as. What am I getting at today? I feel like for a lot of us, maybe you've, been, you've came up and you've viewed him as authoritative. Author, author, oh, butchered that, who cares? Almost done with three. <laughs> Where he's just wrathful, vengeful, angry. Or some of us, he's distant. He's not close, doesn't care. Critical, where he sits up there and he wonders what we're doing and at the end of life, man, I hope I made it into heaven. Or the last one, benevolent, full of grace, full of peace. The hope in the life of your life, inherently good, And also, when it's bad, drawing us closer to depend more deeply upon him with greater awareness and revelation of his relationship. See, what am I getting at today? I think for a lot of us, we may want to change our lives, but the only way that we see God is authoritarian, as distant, as critical. He can't can't change your life if you don't view him as benevolent. If you don't have a view of God as man, this is who he is. Because for a lot of us, and in all honesty, you have a rightful argument to make. You read the Old Testament and you're like, why is this, who is this God? How could this happen? Why would he do this to these people? But what you fail to understand a lot of the times in the Old Testament is all he's doing is responding to his people in a way that can speak to them directly and open their heart. And in all honesty, as sad as it is to say that, sometimes the only way we'll ever listen and hear from God is pain. The worst place you could ever be is so callous that the only way he can talk to you is through pain. And as sad as it is, that's a lot of the Old Testament people choosing their own way, doing their own thing, becoming so callous to the things of God that the only way that they'll listen is through pain. You know, there's an old Indian proverb. If you listen to the whispers, you'll never have to respond to the screams. I challenge you today. What is your view of God? And more than that, do you believe God can cleanse you? Because I believe he can. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to close with one final song, but before we do, if everybody could bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, slash afternoon. You know, we've been kind of in this habit and practice of uh, just stillness. In Scripture, it says to be still and know that I am God. 
In Psalms 23, one of my favorite parts of the entire chapter, it says that uh, he makes us lie down in green pastures and he restores our soul. And you know, when I think about that, I I think a lot of us, if we were to pray a prayer, God, would you restore our soul? Would we be open-minded enough if he wants us and makes us lie down that we would be obedient to do that? See, in this space and in this place, we create intentional time in which we process, God, what is it you're speaking to me? What is it you're revealing to me this morning? What is it you're saying to me as your creation? So today, maybe that's around the idea of who God is to you. Is he authoritarian, distant, critical, or benevolent? Maybe it's the idea that you do want to change, but at the same time, you just want to change certain parts. You've never actually believed that in a rooted and disciplined life and lifestyle of following him, that he would cleanse you in a way that he would take care of the change that you seek. Maybe even right now, you feel as that man, that leper did, ostracized, alienated, and isolated. And God is inviting you right now with the touch to a new life. So we're just going to take one minute before we worship one final time this morning to be present to the work God wants to do in every heart.